Volume One, Chapter One of Gwen Wynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Gwen Wynn, A Romance of the Why, by Maine Reed. Chapter One The Heroine. A tourist descending the Wye by boat from the town of Hereford to the ruined abbey of Tintern may observe on its banks a small pagoda-like structure, its roof, with a portion of the supporting columns, or topping a spray of evergreens. It is simply a summer-house, of the kiosk or pavilion pattern, standing in the ornamental grounds of a gentleman's residence. Though placed conspicuously on an elevated point, the boat-traveller obtains view of it only from a reach of the river above. When opposite he loses sight of it, a spinney of tall poplars drawing curtain-like between him and the higher bank. These stand on an oblong island, which extends several hundred yards down the stream, formed by an old channel, now forsaken. With all its wanderings the Wye is not suddenly capricious. Still, in the lapse of long ages, it has here and there changed its course, forming eights, or eots, of which this is one. The tourist will not likely take the abandoned channel. He is bound and booked for Tintern, possibly Chepstow, and will not be delayed by lesser lions. Besides, his hired boatmen would not deviate from their terms of charter, without adding an extra to their fare. Were he free, and disposed for exploration, entering this unused waterway, he would find it tortuous, with scarce any current save in times of flood. On one side of the yacht, a low marshy flat, thickly overgrown with trees. On the other, a continuous cliff, rising forty feet sheer, its façade grim and grey, with flakes of reddish hue, where the frost has detached pieces from the rock, the old red sandstone of Herefordshire. Near its entrance he would catch a glimpse of the kiosk on its crest, and, proceeding onward, would observe the tops of laurels and other exotic evergreens, mingling their glabrous foliage with that of the indigenous holly, ivy, and ferns, these last trailing over the cliff's brow, and wreathing it with fillets of verdure, as if to conceal its frowning corrugations. About midway down the old river's bed he will arrive opposite a little embayment in the high bank, partly natural, but in part quarried out of the cliff, as evinced by a flight of steps, leading up at back, chiselled out of the rock in situ. The cove thus contrived is just large enough to give room to a rowboat, and, if not out upon the river, one will be in it, riding upon its painter, this attached to a ring in the red sandstone. It is a light two-oared affair, a pleasure-boat, ornamentally painted, with cushioned thwarts and tiller-ropes of coloured cord athwart its stern which the tourist will have turned towards him, in gold lettering, the Gwendoline. Charmed by this idyllic picture, he may forsake his own craft and ascend to the top of the stair. If so, he will have before his eyes a lawn of park-like expanse, mottled with clumps of coppice here, and there a grand old tree, oak, elm, or chestnut, standing solitary. At the upper end a shrubbery of glistening evergreens, with graveled walks, fronting a handsome house, or, in the parlance of the estate agent, a noble mansion. 
That is Langoran Court, and there dwells the owner of the pleasure boat, as also prospective owner of the house, with some two thousand acres of land lying adjacent. The boat bears her baptismal name, the surname being Wynne, while people, in a familiar way, speak of her as Gwen Wynne. This on account of her being a lady of proclivities and habits that make her somewhat a celebrity in the neighborhood. She not only goes boating, but hunts, drives a pair of spirited horses, presides over the church choir, plays its organ, looks after the poor of the parish, nearly all of it her own, or soon to be, and has a bright smile, with a pleasant word, for everybody. If she be outside, upon the lawn, the tourist, supposing him a gentleman, will withdraw, for across the grounds of Langoran Court there is no right-of-way, and the presence of a stranger upon them would be deemed an intrusion. Nevertheless, he would go back down the boat-stair reluctantly, and with a sigh of regret, that good manners do not permit his making the acquaintance of Gwen Wynne without further loss of time, or any ceremony of introduction. But my readers are not thus debarred, and to them I introduce her, as she saunters over this same lawn, on a lovely April morn. She is not alone, another lady, by name Eleanor Lees, being with her. They are nearly of the same age, both turned twenty, but in all other respects unlike, even to contrast, though there is kinship between them. Gwendoline Wynne is tall of form, fully developed, face of radiant brightness, with blue-gray eyes, and hair of that chrome yellow almost peculiar to the Simri, said to have made such havoc with the hearts of the Roman soldiers, causing these to deplore the day when recalled home to protect their seven-hilled city from the Goths and Visigoths. In personal appearance, Eleanor Lees is the reverse of all of this. Being of dark complexion, brown-haired, black-eyed, with a figure slender and petite. Withal she is pretty, but it is only prettiness, a word inapplicable to her kinswoman, who is pronouncedly beautiful. Equally unlike are they in mental characteristics, the first named being free of speech, courageous, just a trifle fast, and possibly a little imperious, the other of a reserved, timid disposition, and habitually subdued mien, as befits her station, for in this there is also disparity between them, again a contrast. Both are orphans, but it is an orphanage under widely different circumstances and conditions. The one heiress to an estate worth some ten thousand pounds per annum, the other inheriting naught save an old family name, indeed, left without other means of livelihood than what she may derive from a superior education she has received. Notwithstanding their inequality of fortune, and the very distant relationship, for they are not even near as cousins, the rich girl behaves toward the poor one as though they were sisters. No one, seeing them stroll arm in arm through the shrubbery, and hearing them hold converse in familiar, affectionate tones, would suspect the dark little damsel to be the paid companion of the lady by her side. Yet in such capacity is she residing at Langoran Court. It is just after the hour of breakfast, and they have come forth in morning robes of light muslin, dresses suitable to the day and the season. Two handsome ponies are upon the lawn, its herbage dividing their attention with the horns of a pet stag, which now and then threaten to assail them. All three, soon as perceiving the ladies, trot towards them, the ponies stretching out their necks to be patted, the cloven-hoofed creature equally courting caresses. 
they look especially to Miss Wynne, who is more their mistress. On this particular morning she does not seem in humour for dallying with them, nor has she brought out their usual allowance of lump sugar, but, after a touch with her delicate fingers, and a kindly exclamation, passes on, leaving them behind, to all appearance disappointed. "'Where are you going, Gwen?' asked the companion, seeing her step out straight, and apparently with thoughts preoccupied. Their arms are now disunited, the little incident with the animals having separated them. "'To the summer-house,' is the response. "'I wish to have a look at the river. It should show fine this bright morning.' And so it does, as both perceive after entering the pavilion, which commands a view of the valley, with a reach of the river above, the latter under the sun, glistening like freshly polished silver. Gwen views it through a glass, a binocular she has brought out with her, this of itself proclaiming some purpose aforethought, but not confided to the companion. It is only after she has been long holding it steadily to her eye that the latter fancies there must be some object within its field of view more interesting than the wise water, or the greenery on its banks. "'What is it?' she naively asks. "'You see something?' "'Only a boat,' answers Gwen, bringing down the glass with a guilty look, as if conscious of being caught. "'Some tourist, I suppose, making down to Tintern Abbey, like as not a London cockney.' The young lady is telling a white lie. She knows the occupant of the boat is nothing of the kind. From London he may be, she cannot tell, but certainly no sprig of cockneydom, unlike it as Hyperion to the satyr, at least so she thinks. But she does not give her thought to the companion. Instead, concealing it, she adds, How fond these town people are of touring it upon our why! Can you wonder at that? asks Ellen. Its scenery is so grand, I should say, incomparable. Nothing equal to it in England. I don't wonder, said Miss Wynne, replying to the question. I'm only a little bit vexed seeing them there. It's like the desecration of some sacred stream, leaving scraps of newspapers in which they wrap their sandwiches, with other picnicking debris on its banks, to say naught of one's having to encounter the rude fellows that these degenerate days go a-rowing, shop-boys from the town, farm-laborers colliers, haulers, all sorts. I've half a mind to set fire to the Gwendoline, burn her up, and never again lay hand on an oar. Ellen Lees laughs incredulously as she makes rejoinder. It would be a pity, she says, in serial-comic tone. Besides, the poor people are entitled to a little recreation. They don't have too much of it. Ah, uh, true, rejoins Gwen, who, despite her grandeeism, is neither Tory nor aristocrat. Well, I've not yet decided on that little bit of incendiarism, and shan't burn the Gwendoline, at all events not until we've had another row out of her. Not for a hundred pounds would she set fire to that boat, and never in her life was she less thinking of such a thing. For just then she has other views regarding the pretty pleasure craft, and intends taking seat on its thwarts within less than twenty minutes' time. By the way, she says, as if the thought had suddenly occurred to her, we may as well have that row now, whether it's to be the last or not. Cunning creature! She has had it in her mind all the morning, first from her bedchamber window, then from that of the breakfast-room, looking upon the river's reach, with a binocular at her eye, too, to note if a certain boat, with a salmon-rod bending over it, passes down, for one of its occupants is an angler. 
The day is superb, she goes on. Sun's not too hot, gentle breeze, just the weather for a row. And the river looks so inviting. Seems calling us to come. What do you say, Nell? I have no objections. Let us in, then, and make ready. Be quick about it. Remember, it's April, and there may be showers. We mustn't miss a moment of that sweet sunshine. At this, the two forsake the summer-house, and, lightly recrossing the lawn, disappear within the dwelling. While the angler's boat is still opposite the grounds, going on, eyes are observing it from an upper window of the house, again those of Miss Wynne herself, inside her dressing-room, getting ready for the river. She had only short glimpses of it, over the tops of the trees on the eot, and now and then through breaks in their thinner spray. Enough, however, to assure her that it contains two men, neither of them cockneys. One at the oars she takes to be a professional waterman, but he, seated in the stern, is altogether unknown to her, save by sight, that obtained when twice meeting him out on the river. She knows not whence he comes, or where he is residing, but supposes him a stranger to the neighborhood, stopping at some hotel. If at the house of any of the neighboring gentry, she certainly would have heard of it. She is not even acquainted with his name, though longing to learn it. But she is shy to inquire, lest that might betray her interest in him. For such she feels, has felt, ever since setting her eyes on his strangely handsome face. As the boat again disappears behind the thick foliage, she sets, in haste, to effect the proposed change of dress, saying, in soliloquy, for she is now alone, I wonder who and what he can be. A gentleman, of course. But, then, there are gentlemen, and gentlemen, single ones, and— She has the word married on her tongue, but refrains speaking it. Instead she gives utterance to a sigh, followed by the reflection. Ah, me! That would be a pity— a dis— Again she checks herself, the thought being enough unpleasant without the words. Standing before the mirror, and sticking long pins into her hair, to keep its rebellious plates in their place, she continues, soliloquizing, If one only had a word with that young waterman who rose him, and were it not that my own boatman is such a chatterer, I would put him up to getting that word. But no, it would never do. He'd tell aunt about it and then Madame Le Chatelaine would be talking all sorts of serious things to me, the which I mightn't relish. Well, in six months more the old lady's trusteeship of this young lady is to terminate, at least legally. Then I'll be my own mistress, and then twill be time enough to consider whether I ought to have a master. <laughs> so laughing, as she surveys her superb figure in a cheval glass, she completes the adjustment of her dress, by setting a hat upon her head, and tightening the elastic, to secure it against its being blown off while in the boat. In fine, with a parting glance at the mirror, which shows a satisfied expression upon her features, she trips lightly out of the room, and on down the stairway. End of chapter 1